I was in my second year of graduate school living in Dallas, Texas, and my parents-in-law came for a visit. We sat down for supper on the second or third evening. They were there, and my father-in-law said to me, uh, Mel, are, you're a gun kind of guy, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, it depends what you mean. Why? Remington guns? I said, well, I've never owned one, but uh, sure, why? Well, he said, I was reading the newspaper this morning, and, and there's a Remington gun exhibit in Fort Worth this week. It starts tomorrow. I, I was wondering if you could take tomorrow afternoon, and you and I could go check it out. Before I could respond, LaDonna chipped in and said, oh, good idea. You need a break. And I realized this was a conspiracy and that I was the last one in a group to be brought into this conversation. I didn't want to appear too eager and, and wanted to make sure he realized how big of an undertaking this would be. So I said, well, depending on where it is in Fort Worth, it'll be at least a 45-minute drive or perhaps even over an hour. Where is it in Fort Worth? And he said, well, I think it says it's in the Fort Worth Art Gallery, but I'd have to check that. And I said, Dad, welcome to Texas. What else is an art gallery for? And so at 12.30 in the afternoon, we set out on our adventure. On the way there, we did some male bonding, talking about some of our experiences with hunting and on the farm and in the bush and different kinds of guns we had used. And I told him the story of picking off my first goose in the air from the front porch of our house when I was 13 years old. And uh, 45 minutes went by really quickly. We got to the Fort Worth Art Gallery. And with some hesitation, we went in and straight to the ticket wicket in the foyer. And I said, is this where the Remington exhibit is? And she said, well, yeah, it's on the second floor. So we paid our money, went up to the second floor and wandered around the common area, peeking into the rooms and acting like we knew what we were doing. And we finally identified a staff member in the common area. And, and we said, can you point us to the Remington exhibit? And she looked at us rather strangely and said, Yes, it's in all three of these rooms, the rooms we looked into. Frederick Remington was a painter and sculptor of the late 1800s and early 1900s who specialized in portrayals of the American Old West. And so since we'd paid our money, we spent the next three hours, well, two hours probably, admiring Remington art. My first art gallery trip it may or not, it may or may not have been my last. That was almost 40 years ago, and LaDonna still laughs about it. Fast forward several years, LaDonna's sister, who lived in London for a period of time, loved taking art history courses at British art galleries. And several times when London went to visit her, uh, went, went to visit her in London by herself, they would, they would book an entire day at an art gallery and spend the entire time in two or three rooms. They'd sit on a bench in front of a painting as her sister would, would interpret and explain the context and the meaning of the painting. And then they'd go to the next one by, by the same artist and, and she would point out how the overall theme was the same, just a different context or a slightly different perspective. They'd go to the next room with paintings often by the same artist and they would study the differences and similarities and themes and styles different styles, same themes. And, and her sister would point out how most of these paintings were not just art. They were political commentary. And in a painting, you started figuring out by seeing how the painter used light to highlight certain features or prominence or distortion or facial expressions where they were looking. 
all of it conveyed a meaning. All of it conveyed a message. So what does that have to do with the book of Revelation? I think the best way to understand this book is that it's like an art gallery. Each section of the book is, is, is like a different room in the gallery. Chapters one to three are, are, are the entrance room. Chapters four and five, the great throne room vision with two paintings are, are the grand room. Well, the first grand room, there are two. The grand room through which you learn and how to interpret the rest of the rooms. The reason this is important is because you don't interpret a painting like you do a manual or a textbook. And the different paintings in this book overlap in their content, but they don't necessarily flow strictly along a timeline. In each painting, there, there is progress, but not necessarily a timeline kind of progress. In other words, as, as some commentators want us to know, what John sees next is not necessarily what happens next. And so we have to be careful. And most of these paintings are our political commentary, interpretation of history, all of history. And sometimes it's not transparent, whether it's the past, the present, or the future. But this is not postmodern art in which the interpretation lies in the eyes of the beholder. There are some very clear poignant and powerful points in the mind of the God who gives these visions that he wants us to know and to remember lenses through which we are to look at life, what is happening and what is not happening and what will happen. As we go into this next room this week, beginning in chapter six, we've got a whole room full of images of judgment It's important that we keep coming back to the room that is chapters four and five in which we see already two powerful points in those two pictures about the judgment of God. Chapter four, we see that judgment is necessary. It's a must. If creation is to become good, if creation is to know the goodness for which we were created, for which our hearts long, because goodness means everything operating as it was designed to operate out of the throne, all of the thrones, you and me, humans created by God to represent and rule for God on earth, all thrones revolving around the throne and submitting to the throne. It's a powerful picture. One we need to sit and dwell on and and catch the vision of continually. But because thrones are not around the throne, there has to be something that happens to correct that. Chapter 5, the one on the throne with the scroll of the will of God for for his creation in his hand. The one with the authority and the ability to pull off that will is a lamb, a slain lamb. A standing lamb. The crucified and risen Jesus is the one who carries out the judgment of God. Which means a number of things. Primarily that the, ju- the one who does the judging has already absorbed into himself, on himself, all the judgment that, might have, that I do deserve. And, and that means that as I read the rest of this book, I can, I can live in hope. What we read does not describe what we need to fear. I will be secure through whatever comes, but I need to be prepared 
for what will happen so I won't be surprised. And now chapter six is the place in the book where there is some real divergence in perspective on what the book of Revelation is. When is it that these things are being described take place? Is this a political cartoonish kind of image that talks about what will happen in the very near future to John, the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Roman Empire. Is that what this book is describing? Or do the scenes in the book represent stages of human history between Jesus' first coming and his second coming? A sort of a map of succeeding empires from John's day until Jesus returns. Some people have read the book that way. Or, or do most of these things happen in a period of time that is still future to us? And if so, where, where does it begin talking about those things? Or does this book give more of a perspective on things that will happen throughout history until Jesus finally wrappings up? Patterns that we need to recognize in history so we are not surprised by them. Or is it? as I think is true, some combination of those without disagreeing with or at least without arguing with other approaches, believing that all of the Bible is given for generations and all periods of history. I would suggest it's a combination of several of those approaches. But first of all, it's a book that describes timeless truth. Truth from the perspective of the unseen realm where time doesn't really exist. And so, As we enter chapter 6, the scroll, the sealed scroll, God's will for history is in the hands of the one who has earned the right, who has the authority and the ability to open the seals and to make it happen. As we move from chapter 5, where things are perfect, working together, glorious, to Revelation 6, where things become gruesome, grotesque, and gory, It's so opposite, so disjunctive. And if we're really in the vision of chapter 5, there are all kinds of questions that come to our minds. How do you move from glory to gory? How do you live in the glory of Revelation 5 when what you see, feel, and experience around us is totally less than that? How? do I live trusting in the lamb with the scroll when I don't see him doing anything? How do I cooperate with the lamb with the scroll as he pulls off God's plan without giving up or without trying to take over from him? How can I keep my head in the real game when life is distracting and dominating and discouraging and and almost defeating me? Or to put it very simply, how do I move from the worship of Sunday to the work of Monday? That's what I think chapter 6, the opening of the seals, is all about. There are three ways that it shows us we need to be able to work well, to cooperate with the Lamb, to continue to be hostage by hope even when things seem to be getting worse. So let's begin. Chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals on the scroll. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! We've got to pause there for a bit. Before we get into the action, we have to take a look at the action that brings on the action. 
Who is it that's saying come? And to whom are they speaking? And what is the significance of what they are saying? Who is it? Well, it's those four living creatures from Revelation 4 around the throne, which represent all of creation, which tells us what? Well, first it tells us that in some way, this picture of Revelation 6 6 is a response to and is in continuity with the visions of chapter 4 and 5. Interestingly, of the three groups of people worshiping around the throne in chapter 5, redeemed humanity, those 24 elders, angels, heavenly beings, and creation, who is it that is crying out? It's creation. What we see here is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, that all creation is groaning at what is happening and what's not happening on earth. The fact that everything is not revolving around surrendering to the throne. Just, just put that on a sticky note in your mind and we're going to come back to that next week. And to whom is it they are speaking? To the one from chapter 5 who's holding the scroll of the will of God for creation, for history, which tells us what? This cry of creation is a prayer. As you go through the chapter, you will notice that every one of the seals is opened. Every step is initiated by a prayer. And with the first four seals, which are like a package, it's the same prayer by the same people. Come! How can I keep my head in the game? How can I cooperate with the lamb as he breaks open the seals? First of all, I need to learn how to pray well. To pray without ceasing well. That's the foremost way we can keep our heads in the game. And and what does it mean to pray well? Well, what is it that those creatures are saying? One word, come. The one word prayer that initiates the action of the opening of the first four seals is simply one word, come. Does that sound familiar? Does that remind you of anything? Well, first of all, it should remind us of of what this big revelation of Jesus is all about. How does it begin? Chapter one, verse seven, look, he is coming, not will come. He is coming. He is on his way. Chapter chapter 1, verse 8. I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And how does it end? Chapter 22. Three times in chapter 22, verse 7, verse 12, verse 20. I am coming quickly. And the book wraps up, chapter 2, verse 20, saying, by Jesus saying, I am coming with a response from us, like the creatures of chapter 6. Amen, let it happen. Come, Lord Jesus. I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice, come. That should cause us to think about the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, around the throne, your name is holy. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in the heavenlies. How much of your praying is simply about, Lord, make my life easier. Lord, bless me in this way. 
Much of our prayer is about God asking us to make our little kingdom better or bigger, my life easier or smoother, right? What would happen to our praying? What would happen to our thinking and seeing it? If every time we want, we want to pray, Lord, make my day easier, we, we changed it and first said, Lord, make your day come. Do you know what happens when I pray come? I start surrendering, releasing control to him, watching for him, working for him. Go back to the base camp teaching on prayer from January, how Jesus taught us to pray. Realignment, come, and then release. And in response to the cry, come, Jesus comes and starts opening the seals, pulling off his will. And as he does, it's not what we expect will happen. The first four seals. I looked, verse 2, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one, and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was granted a large sword. When the lamb opened a third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. How many living creatures? Four. How many cries to come? Four. One of the features of this book of Revelation is numbers. Repetitive numbers. Seven is often repeated. Seven, the number of perfection. Perfect perfection. Total completion. Completion as it is in heaven. Four is a significant number as well in the Bible and in the book of Revelation. It's it's the number of, of completion from a created perspective. Genesis 1, there were four days for the completed setting for life to be introduced on the next day. The Bible talks about four winds and the four corners of the earth to to talk about the whole of creation. And now four seals, four horses. The first four seals are are sort of a package of some kind of a whole. But what is this package? The first four seals is, is perhaps the most referenced word picture in the book of Revelation. The four, what? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Before what? Look, look at it yourself a little more closely. The, the four horsemen? No. Everybody wants to know who the horsemen represent, right? That's one of the dangers of some approaches to the book of Revelation when you start identifying who these people are. Look more closely at what's emphasized in this painting. What is the light shining on? The horsemen? No, it's the horses. A white horse. A red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. 
And that's really important to see, especially as we look at the first horse, because some people look at the first horse and say, oh, it's a white horse, just like Revelation chapter 19. The rider's got to be Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't fit. And, and the rider's not significant here. There, there is a rider on all these horses because there is human agency involved in most bad stuff. But what's important is the horse. So what do these horses represent? Well, let's back up and ask the question, how would we know? How might we think about looking for what these horses represent? Well, one of the most important principles of interpreting the Bible is to let the Bible interpret itself. What that means, we need to ask the question, is there another statement in the Bible that, that sheds light on this, that may be parallel to this? And in a revelation of Jesus Christ, is there perhaps some teaching from Jesus that might shed light on this? Well, there just happens to be a chapter in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, in which Jesus is teaching his disciples the kind of things that, that will happen. In answer to the question, what will be the signs of your coming? And Jesus doesn't directly answer their question. Because Jesus' point is not that we should be looking for signs. His point is that we, we need to always be ready and looking for him. We need to look for him, look at him. But what Jesus does give them is some things that they do need to be ready for in the interim. Some things that they should not be surprised about. Matthew chapter 24, watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. If you want to do an interesting study this week, just take those statements in Revelation chapter 24, verses 4 to 8, and look at what kinds of ways Revelation picks up on the pictures of Matthew chapter 24, even later in the chapter. But for now, let's look at those four things Jesus said will happen in history. Things that have always happened in history that the person who has an understanding of the world through the eyes of how God has revealed himself will struggle with but realize it must happen. Horse number one is the whole thing of achieving power through deceit. This rider is trying to look like the horse of Revelation chapter 19, like the Jesus who is coming. But he's imitating Jesus. Many will come, said Jesus in, in, in chapter 24 of Matthew, in my name, deceiving. And by the way, is that not how it all began in the first place at the fall? The evil one, the enemy of God, took over power by deceiving God's people about what God might really mean. And what happens when that happens? Power through deceit. Oh my goodness, is, is it too cynical to suggest that that is what democracy has even become increasingly? It happens. That's what happens when the thrones are not centered on the throne. Horse number two, what happens when power is achieved through deceit? 
What happens when thrones are not under the throne? War, conflict, and violence always has, always will. As long as the thrones are not submitted to the throne, it will always lead to fighting and power struggles. There were more wars, more death through war in the 20th century than any other century in the history of humanity. We're not getting better, folks. And horse number three is a result of, of, of war famine. Horse number four, death. Is that not the truth about what we see in history? You know, sometimes you hear the question, are things getting better or are things getting worse? The answer is yes, both at the same time. A lot of things are getting better, but much better, especially for some people. But things are also getting worse. And we use the things that make life better to even make life worse, right? And John is, Jesus is giving John a picture of these things so that we will not be surprised. So that we will, number two, see more clearly more realistically, and not be surprised when things happen. The visions of Revelation, especially 4 and 5, are visions to help us see in the unseen realm more fully and clearly. This vision of chapter 6 is given to help us see things on earth more clearly. To see what I see around me is a natural consequence of creation In creation of what happens when humanity, the thrones God put in creation to rule creation for him, under him, when those thrones decide that they want to do it for themselves, by themselves. So what's the big question this leaves us with? I I, I thought this scroll was in the hand of the one who could pull it off. I thought this scroll was in the hands of the, was about the will of God, about God finally stepping in and pulling off his will. Well, yes, it is. We are clearly told this is what it is, that this is his will, not only because it's the opening of his will, but there's a word in the text that says it clearly, repeatedly, three times as it talks about the opening of the first four seals. It says, it was given. Authority was granted to the rider of the horse to bring in the next consequence. It was given by whom? By the one who is in charge, the one on the throne. This word, it was given, is used 31 times in the New Testament, 21 times it's in the book of Revelation. Where is God? He's on his throne. Why isn't he doing something? He is doing something. He is allowing the world to experience what happens when God turns his face to a world that has turned his back on him. The first four seals are are part of the will of God, the plan of God for humanity in history. It's what theologians have sometimes called the permissive will of God. I remember one of the times this happened to me in my relationship with my earthly father. I was 10 years old, I think, or maybe nine. Hopefully it was eight. Uh, my parents, in order to allow me to learn the co- control that, uh, of the resources that God gave me, they, they gave me a weekly allowance. And they took me to the credit union, of which my father was a founding member, and, 
and let the manager, Mrs. Bai, take me upstairs above the credit union to her apartment where she had milk and homemade cookies. And she explained to me as she was sitting on the couch and I was kneeling on the floor on the other side of the coffee table, she explained to me what a bank account was, how it worked, and the opportunity of saving. So every month we would go into the credit union and once a month I would deposit $1, four weeks of 25 cent allowance into the credit union. After a number of months, I was looking at the back page of the monthly Western Canada magazine that came to our house. I forget the name. Some of you may remember. But, but on the back of it was a, was a full-page advertisement for a fishing tackle set. A rod, a reel, tackle, and a tackle box. I wanted that fishing rod. I think it was $13.95. And here was the whole set. I told Dad I wanted to use my money to buy that set. Dad saw through, the hat, through that ad and he said, Melvin, that's junk. You don't want it. And besides, you don't have quite enough money saved up yet. Wait until you have money and see if you still want it. And I said, but Dad, it probably won't be available then. It's such a good deal. It looks so good. Everybody will want it. And I pestered him for several weeks and I think it, I got even rather childishly demanding. And dad finally relented and he even helped me out. And for three to four weeks, I could hardly wait until I got it and realized that it was not what it looked like it was going to be. And dad had allowed me to lose all my money and even use some of his hard-earned money. Was he a good dad or a bad dad? He was a good dad. He wanted me to learn a lesson. In Romans chapter 1, as Paul talks about people denying or at least closing their eyes to the goodness of the parameters that God had laid out for us, it, it says that finally God just gave them over to experience the consequences of living and giving into their earthly desires. Okay, have it your way. The first four seals are God's good, permissive will begging us to see that it's not working and turn back to the one who has already put in place the plan to make it all work for our good and has took on himself the judgment for what we have done. When we cry, come Lord Jesus, when we cry, God, may your kingdom come, sometimes it gets worse. That doesn't mean that God's not hearing because for the kingdom of God to come, it actually stirs up the activity of the four horses and things can get even worse. But here's the deal. Who is it that's in charge? It's the lamb on the throne with the, with the scroll. He's not surprised and things are still in his hands, which means it won't go on too long. It also means that one of the ways we need to see things that, that aren't right is that we need to see them as God sees them, as his patience. And part of our praying and working during that time is to find ways to help people who are wondering during times when things are not so good to turn to God, not away from God, to see the lamb who was slain and is standing for them, not against them. And by the way, that's happening right now in Canada in, in, in the COVID period. I believe there are more people in the Alpha Course in Canada today than any other point ever. 
The opening of the first four seals are to help us see fully. Like Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, Above all, you must understand in, in these last days, scoffers will come scoffing, following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is his coming as he promised? And later on, Peter says, don't forget one, this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead, he is being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to turn around in repentance and come into him and under him. You see, there are two kinds of people during this time. Those people who say, hmm, is God maybe trying to get my attention? Yes, he is. He's trying to say, I love you. I have loved you and I want you. And there are those who will refuse. People who, as we see later in seal chapter six, which you're gonna see next week, who no matter how intense it gets, have allowed their hearts to become so hard, they simply say to the mountains, fall on us, because we do not want to face the wrath of the Lamb. Are you seeing fully? Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged, because the seals are being opened. God's still in charge. It's still going to happen, and it's what is happening now. He's inviting us to be part of his team to help people see he's calling them, not judging them. And then seal five. When he opened the fifth seal, chapter six, verse nine of Revelation, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out, in a loud voice. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Things change in the opening of this seal. The fifth seal describes what has happened to God's people who have been unjustly killed because they have chosen to live for God, to follow God, to declare the good news of a God who has turned his face in love to a world that's turned their backs on him. To those who not only prayed your kingdom come, but answered God's call to invite people to surrender to the king who has absorbed all the judgment we were due and to surrender to him. They were killed. People didn't want to hear that. And what is their prayer? Their prayer is not, Lord, why did you allow this to happen? They know why. It's because the world has turned their backs on God and God is patient and they have willingly paid the price. Their prayer is not why. Their prayer is how long until you judge and avenge our blood? How long until we see justice, until we are vindicated for paying the price? And that is the cry not only of those who have died. It's our cry when we have done something we know is in God's will. It's cost us. But don't get recognized. And, and we start saying, is it worth the price? And the answer they get is not a time frame thing. It's a will of God kind of thing. You have to wait a little longer. There's still a few more people who have to die. What kind of an answer is that? It an answer, it's an answer that shows how patient 
God is, how much God wants the world that has turned their backs on him to turn their face to him. But that's not the only answer, and it's not the first answer. Once again is that word, it was given. And what is it they are given? They are given a white robe. And the point of this for us is that one of the things we need to do as we try to live in a world that is not working right, as we try to live in the Revelation 5 vision in a Revelation 6 world, is that we need to learn to wait and to work, hopefully. God does notice. God will vindicate and validate. To live in a Revelation 5 vision in a Revelation 6 world will cost. It will To believe in justice and not simply do it from a distance in a social media call-out kind of way is to allow it to be, uh, is to become like the lamb who was slain for me, to allow it to become a cost me, not a call-out kind of thing, but a cost me kind of thing. And it can't be done in anger, it has to be done with love. Speaking of working for justice, LaDon and I have been moved this past month or past couple of weeks by the story of a man by the name of Brian Stevenson. We were introduced to him through the movie about him, which is called Just Mercy, Uh, a powerful movie. You have to watch it. Stevenson is a black lawyer from Alabama who has given his life to, at great cost, to racial justice initiatives. The movie was great. You got to watch it. But even better was hearing him speak. And that you got to see after you watch the movie. There's a YouTube video with Tim Keller giving a summary of the Bible's perspective on justice, followed by Brian Stevenson, who is a follower of Jesus, sharing what he has learned. And his final point was, not his final point, his third point out of four was, you have to stay hopeful. Sometimes he says it's easier to be faithful than it is to be hopeful. And he says that if you work for justice and are not hopeful, you become part of the problem. Anger does not work. And then he makes this wonderful statement. Hopefulness is your power. Hopefulness is what will get you a platform to speak when others are told to sit down. Figure out things that make you hopeless and protect yourself from them. It takes courage, he says, to be hopeful. Because to work for the will of God costs It always costs. And sometimes you wonder whether it's worth worth the cost. And then he makes this powerful statement about how to stay hopeful. I'm not sure he was thinking of Revelation 6 when he said it. But it's the point we need to hear from this fifth seal. Because the fifth seal, the will of God that will be pulled off, that is being pulled off, basically is saying this. If we understand that it is happening, we can see our burdens differently. Our burdens actually become our banners. The costs that we have have paid are actually the crowns that we, what, will wear? No, that we are wearing. They were given, not will be given, white robes, robes that identify with them, with the one who is coming in victory. Folks, living in a Revelation 4 and 5 vision in a Revelation 6 world is not for the faint of heart. 
we have to keep leaning in and learning how to pray. Well, Lord, I'm making it about myself again. May your kingdom come. We need to learn to see more clearly and fully. It's so easy to just see the bad and rail against it or close our eyes and try to, to la-di-da-di-da our way through life or, or to get angry and blame. No, God's will is being worked out. And when we see the big picture, we can be patient and work with God to help people see it well. And we can only do that and be willing to pay the price of doing that as we wait and keep on working with hope because our cost is the crown that God sees us wearing even now. Let's live in it, hostaged by hope.